0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ.
1: Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Rebecca Coombs, features editor for the BMJ. This week, we'll be finding out from Seth Barkley, CEO of Gavi, about developments in the vaccine field.
0: From my perspective, donations are, you know, good to test things, but are not it's not a sustainable mechanism.
1: But before that, the Health and Social Care Bill which will dramatically change the English NHS, has made it through the House of Commons. The next step in the process, from bill to legislation, is for the second house, the House of Lords, to examine it. Earlier this week, I went to the House of Lords to speak to Baroness Shirley Williams, a Liberal Democrat peer, who explains what areas the Lords will be debating in the coming weeks, especially when it comes to the fact there were a thousand amendments made to the bill in its second reading.
2: A lot of them of those amendments
1: were purely
2: technical amendments based mm-hmm. upon change of name. Mm-hmm. But even when you boiled all that out, there were still quite a lot of quite serious amendments and there just wasn't time. I mean, The Commons, I think, at the end discussed two major amendments. Two. I think it was two major amendments no, plus the third reading. Three days set
1: aside for debate? Three, three and a bit. Three mm-hmm. and a bit,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. So it really was, you know, they, they couldn't do very much. Mm-hmm. So there's coming up to the House of Lords effectively unscrutinised.
1: So in that case, I mean, how strong is opposition likely to be in the Lords?
2: Oh, I think there'll be a very substantial opposition in the Lords. It won't be party opposition in every case. Mm-hmm. There will obviously be some party opposition from Labour um, and, and maybe others. But the the main thing I think that really worries the Department of Health is that the House of Lords has a substantial number of extremely well-informed and very senior and eminent medical men and women in it. So we
1: can expect a a rigorous and well-informed debate? I
2: think it'll be very well-informed, it'll be very rigorous, and the House of Lords is always very conscientious when it's looking looking at a bill that has not been properly scrutinised by the Commons. And this bill, for the reasons I've said, not because MPs didn't want to scrutinise it, but because at the beginning they didn't realise how radical it was, and then later, when they realised how radical it was, they felt it desperately needed very close and detailed scrutiny. And so I think that they are they are all looking to the Lords as the place that will give it that scrutiny. Is there, therefore, a lot of preparation going on for these debates? I think there's a lot of pressure. Well, there not only is, there was, because one of the things was to start a whole series of seminars, well, sometimes every week, sometimes even twice a week, for six months, I mean, from... Easter, when we had our big set-to at the Liberal Democrat conference, all the way through to now, mm. there was a seminar which was then visited by NGOs, distinguished doctors, eminent people in the medical profession, in ancillary professions of medicine, all of them conducted in the most intense way. I don't think I've ever heard of any other bill that has ever attracted that kind of thing. And a lot of our people went regularly, Lib Dems, um, a lot of Labour people went regularly. A lot of uh, NGO people came to, su- to listen and support their own representatives speaking to them. bit short on conservatives, I have to say. Um, they seemed to be less interested than the other parties. But nevertheless, it was a very intensive study, ranging from mental health all the way through to obstetrics and surgery and so forth. Very impressive, actually.
1: A second area that is of concern to many people is the idea that the Minister of Health may be about to shrug off responsibility for comprehensive health care.
2: I think you can't talk about a comprehensive health system available to all, free at the point of need, without somebody being there saying, yes, I'm
1: responsible for that. Haven't the Department of Health come out and said that, disputed this and said that there's no question that... They've
2: repeatedly said there is no question about that. There will be a comprehensive Mm -hmm. health service. That that comprehensive health service will be free at the point of need and so on. What we haven't got is wordings Mm -hmm. that make it clear that the Secretary of State
1: is accountable,
2: has the ultimate accountability. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a minister who clearly can be questioned, can be held accountable, can be asked to answer for what he does, um, you don't have a eventually, a fully responsible and accountable minister. Mm -hmm. Now, I respect one thing that Mr. Lansley wants, uh, which I understand, which is to stop micromanagement of health. And a lot of doctors would agree with that. So one of the things that the House of Lords stage will have to look at very closely is wording that makes both those things true. In other words, that leaves the ultimate responsibility with the Secretary of State on a relatively limited range of things, Mm -hmm. and a limited range which excludes uh, the ability to micromanage every last GP practice and every last hospital if you see what I'm trying to get at. Not easy to do. Mm -hmm. At the moment in the bill, the Secretary of State can intervene where there is what is called a significant failure. Mm -hmm. If you look at significant failure, the level of definition that is applied by a lawyer is very high indeed. Significant failure represents something Close to collapse. Mm-hmm. And again, our lawyers have said to us, if you had a judicial review, the judicial review would be bound in the language of the bill to be a very significant failure, and the roof blows off um, in some metaphorical sense. So what we've said to the Department of Health is that a significant failure, that's too high a level. You've got to use wording which allows there to be intervention in a situation where a commission or a hospital, is showing signs of stress. So it's not like stress tests for banks. It's almost the same concept.
1: So it seems like there may be major opposition to the bill. What happens next is unclear, even if the opposition is overwhelming.
2: The other thing that is the $64,000 question to which I find it very difficult to answer is right now, here and now, you've got two voices within the health section. One voice says... Um, this is such an awful bill, let's just scrap it and go back to the beginning again. And the other voice says, No, we can't, there isn't any beginning again. Already a lot of PCTs have been uh, undermined or lost staff. Uh, the SHAs, similarly.
1: Well, there's quite a lot of anger about that. Out oh, there, that why, this don't has I been know it. Completely unaccountable change. No, I quite agree. Undemocratic.
2: Yeah. And I, th- I, mean, there's a, I have a real worry about how far the department and the ministers have gone beyond what they had constitutional the right to do. I mean, I gather I'm right in saying that I think it's Surrey, isn't it, that just flogged itself off to
0: mm-hmm.
2: some private body, which may be very good. But we haven't even passed the bloody bill yet. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder on what authority one can suddenly do that.
1: And there's evidence that the Department of Health are... Um dealing with McKinsey talking about the future of up to 20 other hospitals
2: that, that, I mentioned that actually and I asked a question about that. Yes, that's quite right. Um, and again what you know with what authority do they do that? Mm-hmm. I mean the, the, the process of parliamentary scrutiny has been admittedly very long. But it's also been I think you know constitutionally quite worrying. And then if the Secretary of State hasn't got the constitutional responsibility, whom do you address on this subject? Mm-hmm. So, yes, you're right about that. Um, but there's also a real question, and the real question is how far... You, you, you're you not, whatever you do, you aren't going to go back to the beginning for the very reasons we're talking about, that a lot of what was the NHS structure is either undermined or is very rocky now. Mm-hmm. So, from the point of view of the NHS, if that's what one really cares about, does one say, well let's stop this steady undermining and at least get something we can agree on, the best we can get out of the House of Lords and make that the base on which we build up again. Or, as a a mixed economy, if you like, but with the NHS still as the major feature of it. Mm -hmm. Or do we say, um, no, it's really still so awful that we undo the whole thing, even if it takes another year. Do you
1: think that, that could still happen? Is that still...
2: I'm very doubtful about whether it can. I mean, I wish I thought it could, but I'm very doubtful for two reasons. One is that inevitably it means yet more delay. And the House of Lords and all that's going to take another three months. If you then were to build in, if you would turn the whole thing back to starting again, we're looking at the most optimistic view would be six months, probably more like a year. Mm -hmm. And the question then is, can the NHS take that? Because it's already, as we all know, both demoralized and very shaken. Mm -hmm. Um, and, of course, it would mean another period in which the efficiency savings, the Nicholson Challenge, challenge yes. would, be all, would be squeezed into three years. Maybe it's four mm. and, and shrinking. It then it go down to three, which would be almost impossible. So this is terribly difficult. And I just was speaking before you came to a young man from Unison, the union, who came to talk to me. And I put the question to him. And like me, he couldn't answer it. I mean, it's almost impossible to know how to answer it. Mm-hmm. So I don't. I, mean, I frankly would say to you, I don't know what the right answer is yet. I think quite a lot depends on whether the Department of Health comes up with enough substantial and meaningful
1: changes to make it better to go on with what we've got than to go back to the beginning again. That was Baroness Shirley Williams talking about the Health and Social Care Bill in the House of Lords. More on that bill is in Edward Davis's feature online this week. Now this month saw the UN's high-level summit on non-communicable diseases. When in New York, I grabbed the opportunity to talk to Seth Barclay, CEO of Gavi. We started by talking about how the fight against infectious diseases has affected NCD rates.
0: Our interest in NCDs, so far we've had a very big influence. We were able to roll out the hepatitis B vaccine and, and uh, liver cancer, major cancer. Um, we were able to roll out in the west of China a program um, with the Chinese government to immunize the children um, and um, at the end uh, 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 chronic coverage rates went from 10% down to less than 1%. Given our overall program, we've saved more than three million lives with that. The second example is the one where we're talking about right now, which is human papillomavirus.
2: Yeah.
0: It's about 275,000 deaths a year in women and, the, you know, the challenge... in Africa. It yeah. is, it is. And so then the challenge there is, in the places where it has the biggest burden, have the least ability to do the other types of mechanisms. People are working on, on easier screening programs, which I think is very appropriate, but the idea that you would get it out to every woman and then also have the capability to after you screen to treat. We heard yesterday from Rwanda that they don't have a single oncologist you know in the country. And so it's exactly in those places that an immunization, a prevention campaign can really work. You know, the reason I, I started with this infectious side is you want to think of of, of non-communicable diseases, some of which are going to be turned out to be communicable. But it's about the long-term nature, and so in a sense it's, it's more about the chronic disease versus acute infections that we're talking about here.
1: That shows that you have to fight infectious disease to fight NCDs and vice versa. To do that, we need a health system that is able to tackle both.
0: We need to make sure that they have... Uh, a number of things going on in every country. So first of all, and and perhaps most important, it's political will and knowledge around vaccines. Because vaccines are the cost-effective intervention that you can get to the general population. So for even the poorest countries, they are spending money on health, and if they don't prioritize vaccines, um, you know, they're not doing their own internal job well of prioritizing interventions that they can do in a resource-constrained environment. And um, it's going to also be important as countries get wealthier and move towards graduation because then they're going to need to pick up the cost of their vaccine. Second issue is we, we do health system strengthening where you work to try to build into their um, health systems support that ultimately is linked to immunization but, but built within the overall health system. You want it to be within the the overall budget of the ministry, within the plan of the ministry, and within the plan of the other people that help fund health systems in the poorest countries. So when the the donors come together to put in health uh, systems funding, you want them to say, gee, immunization is important, and it's one of the important criteria. We need to make sure that it's going well. A a third issue on sustainability, which isn't directly to your question, is that uh, we ask for the new vaccines that countries... Um, actually uh, pay a, uh, some of the cost. They co-finance the vaccines. And and the idea of that is that, you know, you get used to the idea that you have to pay for it. Even if you're very poor, it's a very small amount of, of, of capital, but as the countries get uh, higher GDPs and move towards graduation, they take on an ever-increasing percentage of that, with the idea being then that when they step off GAVI support, they are, you know, able to support the whole price of the vaccines. Now, one of the critical issues that was worrisome about that in the past was that if they left Gavi and jumped into the open marketplace and now had a procure on the open marketplace, the price might be much, much higher than the Gavi price. And one of the things that happened in our our replenishment conference is that a number of the manufacturers stepped forward and said they were willing to allow graduating countries to continue to get Gavi prices, which was a big deal because, you know, you don't want the double whammy of saying pick up the cost of the vaccine and then at the same time have to, you know, take a huge increase in cost.
1: We need affordable vaccines that stay affordable when countries graduate from Gavi, which may seem impossible without philanthropy of vaccine manufacturers. But Seth has an interesting take on that.
0: The challenge in the broader sense has been how do we create these programs and make them sustainable? From my perspective, donations are you know, good to test things but not, it's not a sustainable mechanism. And so over the long run, what we'd like to do at, at, at Gavi is, is um, obviously get these vaccines rolled out but then over time drive down the price of these vaccines so that as countries graduate, they'll be able to support them. And um, to do that, Price is an important component, but the the most important I shouldn't say price I should say cost because we're really talking about both cost of vaccines and deliveries. Um, but the other component to that is that we want a healthy vaccine market. So one of the things that we've been looking at is to make sure that you know there aren't supply disruptions and that we have multiple uh, manufacturers for a particular you know vaccine. And of course, over time, that allows competition to be able to put in a process improvements and drive pricing down. Yeah, we could
1: talk about that a bit more. So um, what more can you do at Gavi to support emerging market manufacturers?
0: No, I think there's a lot. So one of them is we've created a large marketplace where there wasn't before. So as you know, the tradition for vaccines was that 15, 20 years after they were introduced in the West and competition comes in and price drops, they began to slowly be rolled out. What Gavi's been able to do is... Is, is really squeeze that timeline down to a few years. And in doing that, it changes the market dynamic. So you can begin to talk about large volume markets. And, and um, you know, the old model for vaccines when they first came out was very high cost, very low volume. We're trying to shift that to a you know high volume, low cost type model, where you can initially scale up your manufacturing to higher levels, reducing the cost of goods. That has benefits for the countries we're working with. It also has benefits for the companies because if they can get a lower cost of goods, they can make more profit in their primary markets.
1: That's all for this week. Next week we'll be back looking at how tobacco is increasing the number of TB deaths worldwide.
0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ.